Hello, and welcome back to United for Peace, episode 1.2, A Constitutional Crisis. In September, Onuk encountered a fresh and formidable obstacle to completing goal number one, restoring law and order, as well as goal number four, restoring stability, because on September 5th, President Kazavubu unilaterally dismissed Lumumba as prime minister, and the latter refused to step down. Kazavubu justified the dismissal by pointing to massacres of civilians that had taken place in South Kazai as Lumumba's forces, numbering about a thousand, indiscriminately attacked Baluba people. Ethnic tension between Balubas and other local tribes lay at the heart of South Kazai's secession. Plenty of Baluba people also lived in Katanga. Not to present this as a one-sided affair, many Balubas also committed atrocities against neighboring Lalua people, who mostly remained loyal to the central government. Both ANC forces and Balubas committed murder, mutilation of corpses, robbery, rape, and arson, among other crimes. In any case, the massacre of Balubas by Lumumba's forces seemed like a reasonable justification for dismissal, but there was more to it than that. Of course there was. See, although he and Kasavubu originally said explicitly that they do not want UN intervention in internal affairs, Lumumba by this point had requested assistance from the UN to put down the rebellions in Katanga and Kazai, but Hammershield declined to provide such assistance as he believed it would violate Article 2 of the UN Charter. We'll get to that later when we discuss the operation and how it fits into the broader picture of the UN's powers and policies. Furthermore, the Security Council resolution of August 9th explicitly said that UN forces would not intervene in internal Congolese affairs. So Lumumba requested aid from the Soviet Union, which provided 15 aircraft, which Lumumba used to transport the forces involved in the attack on South Kazai. Aside from throwing a wrench into goal number two, preventing other nations from involving themselves in the conflict, this also prompted leaders of the Western world, trademark, to pressure President Kazovubu to dismiss the prime minister. The Western powers, TM, naturally, wanted to prevent Soviet influence from spreading, just as much as they wanted to assure the Congo that international institutions and the backing of democratic states are dependable. And so, Lumumba was sacked. Supposedly. Both chambers of the Congo parliament, however, supported Lumumba, who in turn tried to have Kazavubu dismissed as president. Now, although both chambers of parliament supported Lumumba, they didn't support him that much. And so the effort to dismiss Kazavubu failed, leading to a constitutional crisis in which the state no longer recognized the head of government. But the government did. Into this crisis stepped another man, who will be extremely important throughout all of this chaotic period, Joseph Desiree Mobutu. Colonel Mobutu accepted about 1 million US dollars worth of money in addition to food from the UN, which got the money for that food directly from the United States. This was to pay his army overdue salaries and keep them fed. This little maneuver was designed to keep as much of the army loyal to him as possible while he launched stroke supported a coup of his own. Now, Mobutu was in contact with Andrew Cordier, the American diplomat who was acting mission chief of Onuk, until Rajeshwar Dayal could arrive. And on September 14th, Cordier ordered a shutdown of the national radio station and the Leopoldville International Airport using UN forces. There was no explicit authorization to do this, but Hammershield had sent a telegram to Mr. Cordier a few days prior to Mobutu's coup, 
that advised, and I'm quoting here, quote, at any time you may face the situation of complete disintegration of authority that would put you in a situation of emergency, which in my view would entitle you to greater freedom of action in protection of law and order, end quote. This does not necessarily mean that Hammershield was aware of the planned coup. After all, there was an ongoing constitutional crisis in the Congo in which the head of state no longer recognized the head of government, and the head of government was trying to get the head of state dismissed, with both shoring up political support to oust the other. In any case, the seizure of the radio station and the airport was nominally meant to prevent rivals for government power from making any moves which may result in civil conflict, but in reality, it was highly political. Kasavubu, who dissolved parliament the same day, maintained access to national radio broadcasting in extremely close-by Congo-Brazzaville, while Lumumba had no such alternative to the Leopoldville station. Additionally, allies of Kasavubu were still permitted to use the airport. You know, for reasons of national security, of course. All the while, Joseph Mobutu claimed control of the armed forces and placed Lumumba under house arrest. This is extremely ironic, because Mobutu was a close personal aide to Lumumba, who promoted him to deputy chief of staff of the ANC back when he made the force publique into the ANC. Mobutu before this was but a mere staff sergeant. So, in effect, we have an American exploiting his position in a UN mission in order to guarantee the success of a military coup against a popular and constitutionally legitimate elected government. In a strange twist of fate, the ouster of Lumumba actually restored a shaky peace in Kazai around Leluaburg. On September 18th, the ANC pulled out of North Katanga, also part of Lumumba's action, and out of Kazai on September 23rd, allowing Onuk peacekeepers to create and maintain a buffer between Leluas and Balubas. But in any case, this is not a good look for the UN, and it seriously stained its reputation, especially among states in Asia and Africa. So, if UN troops were directly involved in the coup, then why did Cordier need to pay Mobutu to maintain the army's loyalty? Mostly for two reasons. One, to keep the army from backing Lumumba, who, as I mentioned, was popular and constitutionally legitimate. Two, because Mobutu was ready to put a veneer of legitimacy on the forceful ouster of Lumumba. See, Mobutu also dismissed Kazovubu momentarily, using armed coercion, and established the College of Commissioners General in order to make it seem like he was merely creating a civilian mechanism for resolving the constitutional crisis. In reality, however, Mobutu was on Kazovubu's side and reinstated him as president in February 1961. All the while, Kazovubu was still rallying political support with the help of radio broadcasting from Brazzaville. The fact that Kazovubu was allowed to shore up his political support is evidence that Mobutu had no plans at this time to establish himself as military dictator. Not at this time, at least. Also during this time, Lumumba was executed. Prior assassination attempts failed because UN troops from Ghana prevented Mobutu's forces from removing Lumumba from his home. However, in December of 1960, the Prime Minister escaped his house arrest. Unfortunately, he was captured just a couple days later by Mobutu's forces, secretly transported down to Katanga, 
where the gendarmerie had vowed to kill him, and he was shot to death by firing squad on January 17th. This whole political episode goes much deeper than what I have just told you, but I want to keep the focus on the UN operation rather than on the Congo crisis as a whole at this time. For now, just know that the ousting and execution of Lumumba was wildly unpopular and sparked domestic and international outrage. Most importantly for us, this move leaves us with four political factions in the Congo with their own armed forces. Colonel Mobutu's military government backed by the 12,000-strong National Army of the Congo. A Lumumba's faction backed by 8,000 Congo Army dissidents led by Antoine Gazenga, who didn't really enter into the story before this point and who I promise we will return to. The breakaway state of Katanga, led by Moïse Chombe, and with an armed gendarmerie numbering about 10,000 men. And finally, the other breakaway state, South Kazai, with an armed constabulary of about 3,000 men, led by self-proclaimed King Albert Kolonji. So, that is the situation by February 1961. And the UN operation in the Congo still has a mandate to, among other things, restore law and order, and restore stability. Another major resolution was passed on February 21, 1961, Security Council Resolution 161, which would ultimately escalate the operation to a whole new level. Security Council Resolution 161 called for the UN to, quote, take immediately all appropriate measures to prevent the occurrence of civil war in the Congo, including arrangements for ceasefires, the halting of all military operations, the prevention of clashes, and the use of force if necessary. End quote. The resolution also called for the following. The immediate expulsion of all foreign officers, advisors, paramilitary personnel, and mercenaries from the Congo. Reorganization of the Congo army and reinstatement of discipline. And reconvening the Congo parliament, which still had not met since Mobutu instated the College of Commissioners General back in September 1960. India mobilized its 99th Infantry Brigade, about 4,700 strong, and put it at the disposal of the UN operation in the Congo at this time in support of the new resolution. Before I get any further though, I have to backpedal a bit. Last time, I said that Onuk provided a good example of why diversity is important in peacekeeping. I also said, however, that it is never enough and that we needed the context of the events of September 1960 to discuss the best example of why this is. Well, we have now discussed the events of 1960 and their outcome, namely Lumumba's execution. After Lumumba's removal from office, Ghanaians in any position in the Congo were put in danger, as well as anyone around them. See, Ghana's president and Lumumba were close friends and had actually entered into a secret agreement for Congo and Ghana to enter into an African Union at some point following Congo's crisis. Furthermore, Ghana's president believed it was Onuk's purpose to aid Lumumba in expelling the Belgians from the Congo. This did not mean merely Belgian soldiers or mercenaries or advisors. This meant Belgians generally. The key here being that the leftist Prime Minister Lumumba would be at the political center of this. So, supporters of Mobutu and Kazavubu 
so mostly supporters of Mobutu, became suspicious of Ghanaian politicians and soldiers. This is despite the fact that Ghanaian troops kept performing their duties so impartially that it was the very same Ghanaian troops first deployed to Leopoldville to restore law and order, who prevented Lumumba from using the Leopoldville broadcast tower from making a radio announcement after Andrew Cordier ordered the station shut down. Clearly, they were not favoring Lumumba in the constitutional crisis. Nonetheless, continuous harassment from pro-Mobutu ANC troops led to such great tension between them and any Ghanaians in the capital that Ghana recalled its ambassador in Leopoldville, this was probably a good call because on November 21st, 1960, pro-Mobutu ANC soldiers actually attempted to attack the Ghanaian embassy and a firefight broke out between them and the Tunisian troops guarding the residence. So there you have it. The Ghanaian troops had been able to restore some semblance of law and order in Leopoldville and disarm rogue ANC units because, as fellow Africans, the native Congolese people trusted them not to advance the interests of the cursed Belgians. But when more nuanced political matters, such as what nations were friendly with what politician, race stopped mattering. Now, before we follow up on the events subsequent to passage of Security Council Resolution 161, let's see how we got there in the first place. Obviously, the constitutional crisis had a lot to do with it but the dismissal and ultimate execution of Lumumba, which we have discussed, only explains part of it. I name-dropped Antoine Gizenga a little bit ago, but it's time to properly introduce him. He was Lumumba's deputy prime minister at the time of his ouster, and was also dismissed by Kazavubu, though also supported by both houses of Congo's parliament. On November 13th, he left Leopoldville for Stanleyville, where he started to rally Lumumba's politicians it looked like he was getting ready to openly oppose Mobutu's military regime. It's honestly baffling to me that Mobutu didn't place him under house arrest like he did Lumumba. What a shoddy coup, am I right? With political events quickly spiraling out of control, the Security Council convened to discuss further measures, but the Soviet Union blocked any further action on the Congo after Lumumba was removed from office, demanding his reinstatement for any further support. But... Fortunately for Dekhammerschild, the Uniting for Peace resolution passed during the Korean War created a procedure by which a deadlocked security council could pass an issue along to a capital E, capital S, emergency session of the General Assembly, which would have the same legal authority normally held by the security council alone. So, on September 17th, the security council voted to call upon the secretary general to call such an emergency session. Since this process is procedural and not substantive, that is not concerning any new policy, permanent five-member veto power did not apply in the situation. Therefore, the Soviet Union could not prevent this little maneuver. Just three days later, on September 20th, the emergency session passed an enabling resolution for, quote, preserving the unity, territorial integrity, and political independence of the Congo, end quote. Now, given the UN's prior statement that it would not intervene in internal affairs, this was technically open-ended about Katanga's status as an independent state. Primarily, this resolution was aimed at using ONUC to prevent the constitutional crisis from descending into a bona fide civil war. 
Fat chance, however. On December 12th, Kizenga declared the Free Republic of the Congo from Stanleyville. Hammershield was right about this situation, descending towards civil war. I mean, beyond Katanga seceding, obviously. When Lumumba escaped his house arrest, he was actually trying to reach Stanleyville to link up with Gizenga for this project, but as we know, he was captured and eventually executed. By this time, however, he was still alive, just in detention. Enjoying recognition from the Soviet Union, China, and the United Arab Republic, recalled that is, Egypt and Syria united at this time, but not domestically except from other Lumumist politicians, he moved to legitimize or at least consolidate his government with a few moves. First, he sent troops to Bukavu in the neighboring Kivu province on December 25th. He dismissed the provincial president there and installed one of his own. Two weeks later, he invaded northern Katanga to encourage disaffected Buluba people there to rebel against the breakaway state. We can see he is clearly trying to get other politicians throughout the Congo to answer to his government and legitimize it even more by bringing Katanga back into the fold. Oh yeah, he also took several Belgians hostage and threatened to kill them if Lumumba was not released. So this was pretty frightening to the 800 to 1000 Belgians who still lived in what was then called Orientale Provence at this time. Now, I cannot find any information on what became of these hostages one way or another. Between five books and Wikipedia as a last-ditch resort, the mere fact that Gizenga took hostages, whom he threatened to kill, is all I could find about the 1960 incident. If you try looking for it online yourself, you will find a lot of information about hostages taken in Stanleyville during the Simba Rebellion of 1964, rescued during Operation Jargon Rouge. This is a whole other, unrelated incident. I am not simply mixing up dates here. There are two Belgian hostage incidents. So, sorry I don't know what became of these hostages. But we know Lumumba was not released, so... I don't know. Anyway, while all this was going on, the situation in Leopoldville remained rough. Although the UN still recognized Kazavubu as the legitimate head of state of Congo, even ceding his delegation to the UN while turning away Lumumba's, it was clear that the UN would not accept Mobutu's military rule. This is probably why Mobutu allowed Kazavubu to retake his place as president in February, although Mobutu kept exercising lots of political power behind the scene. After all, the armed forces answered to him. Well, there is a caveat to that. The indiscipline of ANC forces, which had caused much of the collapse in law and order, could be largely attributed to irregular pay, but it was also due largely in part to Mobutu's attempts to consolidate his hold over the ANC and direct it against his enemies. Some of the collapse in law and order came from ANC units supporting his illegal moves against political rivals, while some came from other units refusing to go along and defecting. The most major example is the former, however, when ANC units attacked the Ghanaian embassy. Another significant example is Mobutu's abortive invasion of Kivu. There are quite a few abortive invasions here. Which he routed through Rwanda-Rundi with obvious Belgian support. This support came not only in the form of Belgium allowing Mobutu to move troops through Rwanda-Rundi, still under Belgian colonial occupation, 
It also came in the form of Belgian advisors being sent to the Congo, with many of them taking up important administrative positions and using these positions to hinder Onuk activities. So, now we have reached February, and there is an active conflict between two competing central governments for all of the Congo, and there are two secessionist states, South Kazai and Katanga. The four factions have between them approximately 33,000 men under arms. The faction that different ANC units decided to support typically depended on their ethnicity. In Oriental Provence, for example, where Lumumba's support was strongest, the majority ethnicity was a family of peoples including, wait for it, the Lulua people. Meanwhile, ANC units supporting Mobutu were mostly Bantu, the largest, though not majority, ethnicity in the Congo. Speaking of the Lulua people, we can see just how bad ethnic or ethnic-adjacent conflicts were in the example of the Port Franchi massacre. This was not a massacre of Lulua's, but it was a jab against the Luluaburg province. In late April, the interior minister of Luluaburg province made a speech in which he said that the UN should disarm ANC units in the area who had caused much violence and terrorized civilians. Now, there was already a garrison of UN troops in Port Fanqui, present-day Ilebo. Onuk had no intention of systematically disarming ANC in the units, however, but they sent two companies of Ghanaian troops to reinforce the garrison. Unaware of just how tense the situation in the city was, these companies approached an ANC roadblock, expecting to be let through. Instead, the troops manning the roadblock opened fire on the column, Hearing gunfire from the direction of the roadblock, ANC troops in the city itself thought this meant that the UN was attacking them. Consequently, they began to attack the UN garrison in the city. The troops in the city, also Ghanaian, were scattered, poorly armed, and in pretty indefensible locations. They made do with essentially British World War II weapons, while the numerically superior ANC forces had Kalashnikov rifles and FN fouls. Scattered, surrounded, outnumbered, and outgunned, the Ghanaian troops in and around the city suffered 43 enlisted killed, and four officers, two British and two Swedish, were executed. To this day, it is the single largest loss of life in a single incident suffered by Ghanaian peacekeepers, and Ghana is a regular troop-contributing country. And this all started because someone took note of the violence perpetrated by soldiers against civilians, largely because of ethnic strife. So, deep cutting and protracted civil war seemed inevitable, so long as this state of affairs continued. Onuk, for its part, adopted a secure area strategy, protecting politicians' homes, separating warring factions whenever possible, and creating enclaves for threatened Africans and Europeans. However, this could not be successful in all places and at all times. A political solution would be needed to ensure lasting peace. That's all for today, folks. I know we still haven't covered the events following Security Council Resolution 161, but believe me, there is far too much action of immediate concern to cover it in this same episode. So, I hope you will join me next time on United for Peace, as we cover many more things, like Onuk's war on mercenaries. <laughs>